welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, the Indo-Pacific, and the fate of the 21st century. I'm your host, Misha Oslin, and today I am honored to be joined by General Richard Clark. General Clark is the 12th commander of U.S. Special Operations Command, headquartered at MacDill Air Force Base in Florida. Prior to assuming command of U.S. SOCOM, that's U.S. Special Operations Command, for those of you who don't know the acronyms that we use in D.C., U.S. SOCOM, General Clark served as Director for Strategic Plans and Policy on the Joint Staff at the Pentagon. He is a ranger, and his other assignments as a general officer include Deputy Commanding General for the 10th Mountain Division, the 74th Commandant of Cadets, United States Military Academy at West Point, and the Commander of the 82nd Airborne Division. Uh, That, of course, is in addition to all of his commands and deployments throughout his career. Uh, I counted seven alone in Afghanistan and Iraq over the past two decades. He's led soldiers at all levels in airborne, ranger, mechanized, and light infantry units in five different divisions. He was born in Germany, raised in an army family. We're actually going to talk a little bit about that. And he is a graduate of West Point, commissioned in 1984. General Clark, commander of SOCOM, welcome to the Pacific Century. Hey, Misha, thanks. And I appreciate you having me on today. Look forward to the discussion. Well, it's it's really great to have you. It's a, obviously we all know it's an extraordinarily busy time, one of the busiest times uh, for the United States government, for the United States military in uh, in in a little bit of time. Um, we of course are not going to be talking uh, about Ukraine because we're a we're a Pacific oriented podcast. Um, but I actually wanted to start off with uh, talking a little bit about about yourself. You're an army family. You were, you were born in an army family, born in Germany. Uh, was your dad in special operations? No, my dad was not. Uh, he was a, an infantry officer. And, you know, some of my youngest days remembering his, his two one-year you know, long deployments to Vietnam, uh, where he was an advisor uh, to different Vietnamese units and was with the 1st Cav Division. Uh, so, you know, that was a, a a formative time for me uh, as, uh, you know, moving to different camps, posts and stations throughout the United States and in Europe, uh, you know, during during my time uh, through high school until I entered West Point. And so your family actually has has been uh, directly involved in in the two biggest post-World War II conflicts we had, which is your dad in Vietnam and Pardon me, yourself in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan uh, in the war on terror. Um, do you have other? I've owned a military ID card since the time I can remember. <laughs> and how about your? Um, uh, do you have uh, other siblings that were in the military? Was it was it just you? Uh, my, I have two younger brothers, and so we were best friends uh, growing up as we moved every two to three years. Sure. Uh, and my, uh, my middle brother did not. Uh, uh, but my youngest brother uh, f- followed me four years later at West Point. Uh, so he entered the he entered West Point uh, the year that I that I was graduated. And is he still in or no? Oh, he 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 spent about seven years in, and then and then uh, is now in Dallas. You, you you've obviously had an incredible career and a busy career. Why for you 
Sof, what was it that if your dad was an infantry officer, what brought you in to going into the special operations community? Uh, you know, I, my path, as you as you identified a little bit in the in the introduction and biography, Misha, was I was also an infantry officer, but my path in was through the 75th Ranger Regiment. So as a as a young captain uh, after Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, in 1992, uh, I was asked and then joined the Ranger Regiment, uh, and I spent four years there. Uh, and the Ranger Regiment, as some of your listeners may know, but not maybe not all of them, is a part of Special Operations. Uh, and so I spent four years and then had subsequent assignments uh, with the 75th. Uh, to include being a battalion commander and a, and the Ranger Regimental Commander uh, after after uh, that initial tour, so that's really what brought me into special operations. But my career, as you as you know, has gone back and forth between conventional units and special operations units uh, throughout throughout the time I've been in the military. Is that a is that a um, uh, I don't want to say unique, but is that a, a normal career path for the special operations community to go back and forth between conventional? Uh, we we tend to think you go into the special operations world, and that's where you stay. It, it varies. Uh, the Ranger Regiment was specifically set up as an Army unit, uh, but with the intent. You know, to make you know, as you look back at the charter that established the Ranger Regiment uh, as it came back into function in 1974, the then Chief of Staff of the of the Army, Creighton Abrams, reformed it after Vietnam, and said, "We will we will have uh, this infantry, these two light infantry battalions of Rangers, to make the rest of the Army better." Uh, but it's but its uh, members will will go in and out uh, of the of the special of the ranger regiment uh, and contribute you know, to the rest of the army so i've i follow that charter uh, about 20 years later so so uh, obviously you you're in the army we're going to actually talk uh, soon about about what the special operations community is cuz some folks know, but they they probably don't have it down too um, in too much detail. But of course, as as you went through staff positions, as you rose through the ranks, you obviously interacted uh, with your uh, your cousins and the rest of the special operations community, um, the Navy, the SEALs, um, Air Force Special Operations, which doesn't get a lot of uh, attention, but does extraordinary, uh, often path-breaking work to, to secure uh, access in, uh, MARSOC, the Marines. Um, how much experience have you had? And of course, now you're the boss, you head them all up. So how much experience did you have in your career of working with the other special operators? And what was that like as a, as a ranger to see these other communities? Well, as as a young ranger and pre nine eleven, we had some. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say, as a battalion commander post nine eleven, there was significantly more. Uh, but but what I think is unique about uh, special operations and, and is that it's probably uh, it's uh, number one. It's inherently joint. Uh, I, from from the minute I joined the Ranger Regiment, we still were working in in he, in in a lot of instances with the Air Force uh, for the range for the Rangers specifically doing airfield seizures, uh, 
a significant amount with the Air Force, but as has developed over time, a lot uh, with the Navy, with the with the Navy, as you point out. Uh, but then there's also from Rangers, there's a lot of Army special operations uh, between the Green Berets, uh, our special forces, and the, our Night Stalkers, our special operations aviation regiment. And we can never forget our great civil affairs and and psyops uh, individuals that are inherent to to the soft community. So you mentioned 9/11 and the the changes that came about in uh, uh, your your ability to experience working with other groups and the inherent jointness. Probably, and of course, you know, for those of us who at least were uh, adults during that period, and you, of course, lived through it. Um, it's it already 20 plus years ago, so it, it's it's now getting into the, the realm of history. So probably for most Americans, um, their, their, their real exposure to special operations probably came in the wars on terror and came with, of course, you know, very well-known uh, operations and, and the like. And yet the special operations community goes back in an extraordinary time period back to World War II. Can you tell us a little bit about who the special operations forces in America are that bring you to your role today right. at McDill. Yeah, no, it's Misha. It's a great, a great lead in and a, and a tremendous question because everyone does think about about SOCOM from nine eleven forward, uh, but we got to take our roots all the way back to the Office of Strategic Services, uh, with at that time when it stood up. Uh, Colonel Colonel you know, Bill Donovan uh, and Medal of Honor winner from World War One, and where we put forces behind enemy lines, small teams in in particular. Everyone thinks of France, mm-hmm. uh, but it also went in the China Burma India India theater, uh, where the OSS operations uh, were conducted, and they did they did everything from intel collection. Uh, and strategic reconnaissance, still a soft mission today, to sabotage and direct action. Uh, and there, there are tremendous st- stories of heroism uh, in, in uh, you know, behind the lines in France, where entire division, you know, German divisions were trying to capture <clears throat> some of the OSS teams uh, that were working in their backyard, and then they postured. Just like we could today, uh, postured to assist the Allies upon the the, the landings in Normandy, uh, so uh, that that really goes back to those OSS roots that both us uh, and the CIA uh, look at, uh, and both of these organizations founded after World War II. Uh, and I can go more into our history if you if you want to, Misha. Yeah, but I, I'd love to. I, I I'm glad you brought up the point about. Uh, special operations coming out of OSS because almost invariably people think OSS to CIA in a direct line, but there's there's the military side. And of course, initially the CIA did not do paramilitary operations. It developed that. Um, as just an, an anecdote, when I was an undergraduate at Georgetown, we had a mentorship program and uh, my mentor, uh, which was not inside the university, but outside was Bill Colby, who, oh, sure. who was the uh, later, of course, the director of CIA, life, a lifer in CIA. But I remember him talking mostly about his time in the OSS, parachuting in behind enemy lines and skiing. And, you know, with that 
lovely as we're riding in his his um convertible sports car through the streets of georgetown and he would with that lovely nonchalant list that you just had to believe was was at least somewhat practiced he would say it was a wonderful vacation you know skiing (laughs) skiing in the middle of of occupied europe but but that you know that paramilitary side that then developed now did we then have special operations all the way through the cold war because you mentioned the re um the the re-standing up of rangers in the 1970s what what happened well i think it's really it's a it's a great question and while i i didn't know uh, CIA director Colby. I know his son very well, and I think it's important to point out uh, Bridge Colby and and his great work in the right. Indo Pacific, uh, which is not lost on me. Uh, We're going to be having him on the podcast in uh, another month. So Bridge, okay. I've known since Yale. Gave, yeah, good. I so. just gave a we just gave a spoiler alert. Uh, perfect. We, <laughs> we'll take any advertisement we can get. Believe me. Um, but what happened after World War II uh, and was that the the OSS stood down uh, mm-hmm. you know, completely, but then the services, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, developed their own special operations, depending upon the needs specifically to that service. They just, and some did more than others, uh, but n- there was not anything that pulled them together jointly. There were still, you know, great green berets underneath the army. There were still, uh, at that time, they weren't known as SEALs, but then eventually became SEALs. And then, and as I noted, the frogmen, right? Frogmen, BDUs. Yeah. Old days. Like the Rangers stood back up in 74, but there were still Ranger, but there there were Ranger companies in Korea Mm -hmm. uh, and there were Ranger companies in Vietnam. In fact, one of the Ranger company uh, most uh, you know most historied leaders was just awarded the medal of honor by president biden for actions back in korea as a ranger company commander just Amazing. about eight months ago colonel ralph bucket uh, so we we had we had rangers in korea but what happened and you you know well but i i'll, I'll hit for some of the audiences we 1979, when hostages were taken at the embassy in Iran. And President Carter at the time made the decision to do a hostage rescue attempt uh, in the spring of 1980. Uh, That operation was known as Operation Eagle Claw. Uh, Unfortunately, that ended in tragedy uh, when we had Marine helicopters and Air Force planes collide uh, with several of the multiple of the rescuers uh, that were going in a, to this desert landing zone uh, a, a couple hundred kilometers south of Tehran crashed and that aborted the rescue attempt. And then because of that, Congress, as they went back and studied, that there was not a joint special operations for people to be forced to work together. Uh, And out of Eagle Claw, and then came the Joint Special Operations Command, uh, or JSOC, uh, to bring this joint force together uh, for these type of missions. But then after Grenada happened in 1983, when we went to go rescue uh, some medical students, 
it still wasn't as good as it could be. Uh, and that's when Congress decided and studied uh, with the Holloway Commission, stand up SOCOM, and the Nunn-Cohen Amendment uh, directed that SOCOM be stood up in 1987. So that's, as you pointed out, I'm the 12th commander uh, since 1987. So it's a fairly uh, new command. But I think it's important for, for everyone, as you go back and look historically, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the head of the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force, and the chairman of the Joint Chief, they all said, no, we should not have a SOCOM. Uh, because they wanted to retain their own Navy SEALs, their special forces, their Rangers. They wanted to retain those within you know, their parent services. But Congress, uh, by law and by statute, uh, established uh, the Special Operations Command and made it a combatant commander, which I think is important, and not its own service. And I can go into further detail if you want to about that. Yeah, I think I think I'd like to uh, in a second and um, to note uh, just two things since we're on the history. First, that uh, thank you for pointing out, and, and and actually that was something I I don't know how I skipped that in my research. 1987 was the standing up of of uh, SOCOM. I don't know exactly how that escaped me, but it is a Cold War end of Cold War era command. Again, most people probably think that that SOCOM as SOCOM today is, is post-Cold War. Um, we should also note, since you are a ranger, sir, I mean, we, we should note that of what we call special operations today, the rangers go way, way back. We're talking back to the Revolutionary War and actually back to the French and Indian War. Um, before we were a country, the British and Robert Rogers formed rangers. They were known as Rogers Rangers. Um, and in fact, I think the rangers creed or, or the rules are still from Robert Rogers from the uh, 1760s, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. Yeah, that is right. And those rules uh, are still something that we, you know, if you go to the Ranger Memorial, uh, you will see those rules. Uh, Which is where? At Fort Benning, Georgia. Okay. You know, the Re Ranger Regimental Headquarters, those rules, the 19 rules uh, are extraordinary. There and you can still see. So, so. Rangers, Rangers go way back, um, obviously, SOCOM, a little bit more recent. Uh, one other thing to, to note, I, I, just more for um, folks like me who, you know, who uh, haven't served in, in that community is I think a lot of people get confused between special forces and, of course, special operations. And so a lot of times people say the special forces, that's really the army and, and the Green Berets, the army's special forces. Uh, and then special operations is this much larger community we're talking about. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that laydown of, of, of your, your, again, your, you're now the boss. What what do you see when you look out your window? What what is the special operations community today? And can you talk a little bit, not just about the component parts, and if you could, by the way, talk about the distinction of being both a combatant commander as well as an OTE uh, commander, um, but then also about the composition of the force. Uh, we we think about you know officers, but our NCOs are critical. So maybe you could walk us through what you see out your window. Yeah, there's a lot there. I know. Uh, I know. So and you just use an acronym of Organize, Train, and Equip, uh, or, or OTE. Uh, but I, I think for the listeners, SOCOM is, is really dual-hatted as right. both a unified combatant commander with service-like responsibilities. And I think there's 11, com there's 11 combatant commanders. The combatant commander 
works directly for the Secretary of Defense. And I think that's that's important where as an army, if I was the the chief of staff of the army, note it's not a commander, it's a chief. Uh, And the chief of staff of the army works for the Secretary of the Army, uh, whereas combatant commanders report right to the Secretary. And, but as a unified combatant commander, I have responsibility to organize, equip, and employ forces, command all U.S. soft forces in the United States, and deploy those forces to meet the needs of the geographic combat commanders. Um, and then as directed, could conduct special operations globally. But then as, as service-like, or you, you already hit it, organize, train, and equip, program and budget uh, for soft and you know you can't have a strategy unless you have a budget uh, that that follows that uh, and really important and this is you know some people call the secret sauce of socom is that we can procure soft peculiar equipment so things that are you know i i don't need to go buy an ar-15 rifle uh because that's what the army already has. But if I need special scopes or suppressors or night vision goggles to help them accomplish a specified mission, we can go do that or if they need a special weapon. Uh, but then I also have the responsibility for strategy, uh, doctrine, tactics, and then also managing the careers of soft personnel. Uh, so it's a it's a pretty big you know, it's 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 a great responsibility, and I'm honored uh, each and every day to to lead the forces. And, and if if you'll permit me, Mish, I'll just I'll briefly describe that mix of forces, please, because uh, uh, I think it's important. In Army, you've you've hit it, and you were exactly right. Special forces are are green berets. We use the word special operations forces to be the umbrella for all of them, but in the Army. Green Berets, Rangers, Civil Affairs, PSYOPs, and, and then our, our 160th Rotary Wing uh, Aviation. Uh, and then you hit Navy SEALs for the Navy. But they also, it's important, they have their, they have special uh, training and equipped boat drivers mm-hmm. to be able to move them from, from uh, you know, across the seas and work in, in the littorals and, and hard to reach areas. Our Air Force special operators fly everything from tilt rotor, uh, CV you know, 22s, all the way, you know, MC 130s to deliver uh, our people, but also AC 130 gunships uh, that you're fill- and some very uh, unique platforms for us. And then you hit our Marine Raiders. Uh, <laughs> That is our newest component. Component they were not set up until 2014, uh, so I think that uh, that hits uh, our forces overall. Uh, but we can't do it without the support of the services who provide key enablers like intelligence, professional logistics, and medical people who may not be specially selected into those positions, but they are actually in our formation to provide. Uh, capabilities for our, and unique skills for our force. What is the, um, let's talk a little bit about the force. I know folks are probably saying, when are you getting to China? When are you getting to the, we're going to get there, but, but this is, you know, really a, a rare opportunity to be able to talk with you about uh, a force that, that we should note has been 
you yourself did seven deployments, if I counted correctly, during Iraq and Afghanistan. It doesn't count the other deployments you've done. This is a force that has been under enormous stress and, and a tempo that has been relentless. But I'd like to talk about those men and women who do it. Um, uh, how old are they? How many officers do you have? How uh, <laughs> how many NCOs? I mean, how big? By the way, how big? If we can, I don't know if it's a classified figure. How big is SOF? And how yeah. many folks do we have doing it? Uh, and really, that backbone are the NCOs, and we know the toll it takes. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about the the men and women that that are serving under you. Yeah. So. Lot, lot of questions there, Misha. Uh, I'm just trying to get them all in, sir. I just tried, we, we, yeah. we got such no, a little time. I gotta I'll try to hit them all. Um, the the size of the force for the mil, uniform military is about seventy thousand. Seventy thousand. And uh, but I I'd be remiss if I didn't hit our civilian workforce because some of those are our acquisition uh, executives, some of our money people who assist with our programming and our comptrollers and our civilian workforce is about 10,000. Wow. Uh, okay. A pretty pretty robust force to support, uh, to, to make sure that our people have the right equipment and resources that they need. Uh, of, of that, you, you, you nailed it. Uh, our non-commissioned officers uh, are really the, the, the backbone, the bread and butter. It's what sets this military apart, but I'll tell you, it also sets SOCOM apart because we have the best, uh, it, I believe, across the board. Because they are specially selected. Uh, uh, they go through assessments uh, to come into this in, inside these formations. Uh, and some of those assessments are pretty tough, as you can imagine. Uh, you know, if you've seen you've seen the movies about about how hard it is you know, sometimes to make it through, uh, you know, buds or basic underwater mm -hmm. demolition school for our seals, uh, the attrition rates are pretty high. Uh, yeah. But once they make it through that crucible, uh, most of them stay with us uh, mm -hmm. and they stay with us for their career because I think uh, it's, it's, it's an incredible, uh, it's, an, it, it, it's an incredible position in which to serve your country in. And the one, the vast majority do make a career of it uh, because it, because our average, our average age of our enlist is actually about thirty-one. Uh, average age of the of the officers about thirty-four. And I'm assuming uh, that's higher than in the rest of the military. That that is that is much higher. Uh, a good percentage of them come into the service, come into soft, like like I did. Uh, a few years after already serving in their own service first. Not all, some have direct assessments, uh, but some, but a lot come after serving somewhere else. So, I mean, if you look at the average age, average time in service of our enlisted is actually 11 years. Wow. And our officers are about about 13 years. Uh, so uh, they're, they're, they're already a little bit more senior a lot of them have uh, college education. Uh, our average is about two, two. All of our officers have four years of mm -hmm. uh, undergrad degrees, and most of our enlisted probably have you know, about two years of college education on average. Some come in with masters and doctorates uh, that I've worked with, and they're just amazingly talented. They just wanted to serve. Well, uh, well having now you made me feel really bad as having a doctor not having gone into soft, not that I could have made it through. It's not too late. 
Come on, sir. I'm 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 coming down. Uh, there's no <laughs> question. Um, uh, before we start moving over to the Pacific, because I do want to I do want to ask you about that. Um, there there has because of the the amount of demand on the force. There, there's been talk, of course, about increasing numbers, and then you know, quite honestly, questions about can you maintain the quality? Can you maintain the um, uh, in terms of selection, and then in terms of training? Where do we stand with that? Is the force expanding, and do you have any concerns that uh, in order to meet the demand signal from policymakers, that the soft that may be in five years is not maybe the soft that was ten or fifteen years ago? So I, I, I'll always go back to to our soft truths, mm-hmm. uh, and, and and we have five soft truths which I I can I can repeat. Please, I, mean, I don't probably most but, people have not heard but, them. Yeah, but soft truth number two, which I'll start with, is uh, quality is more important than quantity, uh, and so I, I would say that in the last twenty years, uh, while the while the size of soft as I told you, 70,000. On 9-11, we were about 35,000. So it's doubled. We've almost, we've just about doubled in size, but we just got there within the last two years. Mm-hmm. So go, uh, I'm going to weave in soft truth number three, uh, which is soft cannot be produced overnight. Uh, it, it takes year, it, it probably takes on average uh, about 18 to 24 months if someone is going to do a direct accession into soft before they even get to their first unit. Uh, so that's a significant uh, amount of time uh, and investment uh, that you can't, you can't stand them up and then say, okay, let's reduce the size of soft because if you do, it's gonna, you're going to have a bathtub. It's going to take a while to, right. to build them back up. Uh, and then I'd be remiss if I didn't hit soft truth number one. Uh, because I think it's important as we look, which is humans are more important than hardware. Right. We can have all the great tools in the world, uh, but our human capital uh, of unique uh, problem solvers, skilled, dedicated professionals is really our biggest advantage. And we, uh, we're we going to continue to stick with those soft truths. And you know, all three of those are all about people. Right. So. Um, before we move to the Pacific, just you piqued our interest. So what's four and five? Okay, four and five. <laughs> Com- competent soft cannot be created once emergencies occur. Right. Uh, go, uh, and then most, and this goes a little bit to our, to our formations, but then our work with the services is that most soft operations require non-soft support. Uh, we're still going to need others that that are part of this. We couldn't, we can't go into Afghanistan and win the. You can't go in and win everything by yourself. You just, uh, it, it's impossible. You need all the things uh, to make that operation possible. Whether it's logistics or whether it's intelligence uh, support, uh, we, we need. We got to. We got to be. Uh, we can't do this on our own. Well, that's a great point, I think, um, to, to switch into the Pacific, given the, the size there and um, uh, obviously the size of the AOR, the fact that it is uh, one of, for us, the most, well, uh, you know, outside of where we were in the Middle East, one of the most heavily sort of conventionally focused commands, right? I mean, with the Navy and the Seventh Fleet, and you've got uh, a couple of numbered air forces out there. Of course, we have Marines uh, that are out there. Um 
Can you tell us a little bit about SOF in the Pacific? I think it's easy. It's very easy for Americans to think and for listeners to think about SOF in the Middle East. Where are you in the Pacific? What do you do in the Pacific? Because, of course, we're not we're not fighting now, thankfully, but but we have very unique challenges, uh, some of which would seem to be directly within the, the competency and the core competencies of SOF. So where is SOF in the Pacific? And then we can talk about a little bit partners and then some of the threats. Yeah. So let me start with a little bit of overlay because I think it's important. Uh, Admiral Aquilino, who's the the Indo-Pacific commander, um, you know, based in Honol- you know, based in Hawaii. We we actually have a two-star, in this case, happens to be an Army uh, general right now, who is his special operations commander, component command for Indo-PACOM. So he he works for me, uh, but he also is in Hawaii and works for Admiral Aquilino. He and who is that currently? Uh, it's uh, Major General Josh Rudd. Josh Rudd, okay. Uh, and before him was an Army two-star, but before him was a Marine, before him uh, was right. a Navy SEAL. Uh, and so it can be a joint commander. Um, it can be of any service. And, and he has a staff of several hundred individuals that help with Admiral Aquilino in planning out uh, campaign plans where we should be, but also what actual uh, training events, where we're positioned, what we should be doing in the Indo-Pacific. And he does that day in, day out. I talk to him all the time uh, about what they need, where they're operating, uh, and, and he develops you know, year, years long plans to make sure that we have the proper U.S. investments uh, there for special operations to support Admiral Aquilino. And I think that's a, a, a you know important part to this. But, you know, to your direct question is SOF has been in the Pacific, as I pointed all the way back to China, Burma, India uh, theater. In fact, uh, I, I I always like to talk about, I'm going to go way back in history. Everybody knows who General Douglas MacArthur was. We all know what he said when he left the Philippines, right? Yep. I, sh- I shall return. Right. A famous line. Very few people know about, at that time, Captain Russell Volkman. Captain Volkman subsequently wrote a book about his experiences in the Philippines. The book was titled, We Remained. And, and Russell Volkman, uh, against the advice of some of his teammates, had been in North Luzon mm-hmm. uh, at the, at, in 1940 when he first arrived. And he, he had been training with Filipino regulars. Uh, when they got pushed back into the Bataan Corridor, he escaped through enemy lines and headed north. And he fought with guerrilla Filipinos who took him in and they led a resistance in North in North Luzon for three years. Amazing. And, and so you, you go back historically about Soft's in, involvement in there and other, uh, and, and in the, you could go into the China, Burma, uh, India, mm-hmm. where rangers did raids and uh, things. So I think you got to go back all the way to that point in time. But I, I, we we have been there consistently. 
and and I like to point specifically to the Philippines mm-hmm. because we we went to the Philippines at their you know an ally treaty partner uh, went went to the Philippines after nine eleven specifically for the violent extremist threat that they were encountering you know, with a named oper the only named operation uh, inside. Uh, the Indo-Pacific theater to assist them with their counterterrorism threat. Uh, and we've remained there uh, since 2001 with them and really helped as they tried to take back the, you know, really parts of their country that had been mm-hmm. overrun uh, with, with the terrorists. So uh, that's one example. Uh, and I'll pause there to see if any questions I can talk more broadly about uh, some of the things we're doing. No, please, please, if you would, tell us yeah. a little bit more broadly. Okay. It'd be great. So, you know, we're, we're, we're in more than 15 countries in the Indo-Pacific. And I won't get in, you know, for reasons of classifications, all of the different ones. Uh, but some, in every case, were there at the behest of the host government, where they're working with their uh, military and, and, in, and almost invariably with their, with their soft forces. Because in most countries, as, as you understand, Misha, their soft forces are their premier forces in that mm-hmm. country. Uh, and we, we are training with them. Uh, they're very accepting of, of that training and that coordination with them. Uh, because they see the experiences that our forces have had in the combat zones in Iraq, uh, Afghanistan. Uh, and so they value uh, that working relationship for, for, for individuals and teams that are combat tested. But many of our forces, and, and we've hit on some, like the Marine Raiders and the special, uh, our Green Berets, they, they have language. And they have specific culture, and they are they. We well, call them repeat offenders, <laughs> because they're they're going back uh, to a country like, and I'll use a specific great partner of Thailand, mm-hmm. uh, where they've got some of some of our teams have gone to Thailand multiple times. Uh, if you go to the special forces training uh, area in Thailand, there's a statue of a green beret. Wow. Uh, that is in Thailand because they we've been there over and over. I it's countless the amount of of ties that have come through our special forces qualification course and have long term ties uh, that they they spent a year and a year plus inside the United States going to our course. Uh, and I think those those type of long term ties of of trusted uh working side by side uh, with our forces that that you know that has been built over over decades uh and you know it, go, it goes to kind of one of our ads you can't surge trust right. uh, and working working with these allies uh is is really important i'd like to ask actually about uh, a couple of the other allies um because we think of them immediately when we talk about um, uh, U.S. and the Indo-Pacific, which is Japan and South Korea. We know South Korea is an extraordinary soft force. They have to because of what they face with North Korea. Um, Japan has less of a soft, uh, and I, I know I've talked 
with them about interests and building where where do things stand with with both of them and how do you uh how much do we interact with both of you us being you how much do you interact with both south korean soft uh and japanese soft yeah great great lead-ins uh so a, a couple things i i talked about major general rudd being uh, inside uh, hawaii I, I I was remiss in also not mentioning because Korea is so important. Uh, we actually have a two-star uh, air force in this case. It could be mm-hmm. the last one was an army uh, officer specifically in Korea to manage the operations activities uh, that we have with the Korean SAW. Uh, I've been personally in the three years I've been in command here. I've been just to the Republic of Korea. Uh, two times, and I've actually had their soft commander uh, come here to the United States several times. And I, I, I probably do a video teleconference with their soft commander every few months. <laughs> uh, they have a, they have a, as you noted, an incredible soft uh, uh, force, but they have a, they, they have a history of continuing to, to train their soft. Uh, for their unique, for what they need uniquely, uh, to to look at potentially North Korea soft forces infiltrating behind their lines, uh, for them to actually look at what what could be uh, coming from North Korea, and, and they put a lot of they put a lot of effort into that. So, long term great relationship uh, with 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 many of our soft forces that have gone to Korea and continue to train. We keep that. We keep a detachment there at all times, training with the with the Korean saw, and and the Japanese, uh, obviously, still a bit nascent uh, from their capabilities, as you alluded to. Uh, but I, I, I I'd be remiss if not to mention that we have a special operations wing, uh, so uh, Air Force Special Operations, and we keep a special forces battalion on Okinawa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so as we have in, in the last several years have continued to build those ties as the Japanese look at additional capabilities that they want to develop uh, with their soft and, and look for some of the partnerships that we could have. So I, I think we got I, I think we have a great opportunity with the Japanese uh, in the coming years to continue to look at. Uh, where they want to go with their soft forces is that you know the Japanese territorial and Japanese defense forces uh, continue to develop. I, I I've been to Japan a couple times, uh, and I think we I think we have some uh, some continued investments we'll 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 make forward with the Japanese. Yeah, and I think as they um, increasingly and and now almost overwhelmingly look down at the southwestern islands, you know that's very soft friendly territory when you think about what's needed to to secure them in some ways so uh all this this is this has been um a lead up uh i think we're getting to the to the to the main event now there's people really want to hear which is um you've talked about partners we've talked about history um let's talk about the threats and let's talk about the challenges and obviously there's there's certain levels you can't get into but but again from your desk which which really has this unique global view um, as you look at the Indo-Pacific, 
what are what are the threats that that we face? A lot of people don't know anything about Chinese soft. There's not much information on it. Um, is it a peer force? Is it is is it a growing force? Do they even have it? What can you tell us about how we view dealing with with challenges? Let's let's put it that way. So, just just as I'd look at any other threat, I I don't necessarily just look at their soft. <laughs> Because you, you, because that that sure. wouldn't be that that would not be the right approach you know, for me to take. I got to look at their entire military, their entire capabilities, and and not just their military, but everything else uh, that provides them instruments of power uh, that they may that they may use uh, against uh, against us uh, or against our country. But you know, as you're pointing out. It's clear China is a pacing threat, um, and and I think I don't just look at it just from a Indo-Pacific uh, perspective, but try to look at it as China is a global power, right? Uh, and they have interest uh, across the globe you know, to protect their Belt Road Initiative. Where are they going to put? You know, uh, potentially put additional bases. Where are they going to continue to try to leverage in a in a global uh, competition you know, in South America or into Africa uh, as examples? So you know, I think it's I think it's key that we look across the globe when we look at China. Uh, but you know, I, I as I look at and I and I already hit a little bit on it. That, you know, people people come to me and you know as we're talking about China. And say, well, are are your special forces learning more Mandarin? And I go, no. <laughs> uh, our special forces are learning all the other languages in the region, right. uh, and we're we're focused on uh, com- on that competition for influence and, and building that trust and confidence uh, with our allies and partners. But uh, but I do believe that you know our our biggest advantage is our people, as I've talked about, mm-hmm. that are combat credible and battle tested uh and i think both our partners know that but i also hope that our adversaries think about that and i I think that's that's really important and and i appreciate you uh, you sort of reining me back in i I didn't want to give the impression (laughs) that i was thinking you know american soft goes head to head with chinese soft it's definitely not what i intended to ask and and though the question of chinese soft is very interesting but let me then get get to the the heart of sort of what you said when we think about the Indo-Pacific we think about conflict and then of course that's uh, you know what Indo-PACOM's job is to do we think in very conventional terms usually we're thinking aircraft carriers we're thinking fighters we're thinking bombers um, I, I you know the army I know is I, I don't want to say struggling but is attempting to figure out what you know what role does the army play in a largely though not exclusively maritime domain um, even more so in some ways for soft. You, know, you guys are not going to be operating big deck carriers. You're not going to be operating B-52s. Um, uh, or if we're in a major land war on the Korean Peninsula, it's it's not sending in you know armored divisions. What does soft? What would soft do? And obviously, it depends on what the conflict is. But but can you give us some of the ideas of what soft would be doing uh, because of your niche capabilities? Yeah. So first. We don't want to fight, right? But we we want 
we want all of our activities today to actually assist with deterrence. Uh, you know, the, the combat credibility and working with allies and partners. But we, and, and truthfully, I, my belief is the Chinese don't want to fight either. Uh, and, you know, as we could take this and what, what's happening in Ukraine right now. Uh, and I think there's some important lessons there. So our, our first job is to ensure that we're providing that combat credible force and work with allies and partners to prevent that. Uh, I think an important part of this, I think also we have to bring out is uh, in, in the information space, because mm -hmm. we, as, as I talked about earlier, we, we have military information support ops. We want to make sure that that message about the about the credibility of our elements uh, is there uh, and understand what we what could happen or what uh, how it wouldn't be to anybody's advantage uh, to fight. Um, but as, as you go to, you know, all right, what if there is a high end fight? What what are those type of things we do? And I, you know, one of my predecessors talked about it, so common in this role. It's really war around the edges. Mm hmm. Uh, it's it. It wouldn't be direct uh, in you know in this, but what what does the adversary hold dear? What what are those you know, things that allow the joint force to be more successful? Uh, and it does. And depending on what policy decisions, it doesn't have to be inside the Indo-Pacific. It could be in other areas in other regions. Uh, where it could be reconnaissance or it could be sabotage. It could be direct action uh, against other things that aren't necessarily the big aircraft carrier that you just talked about, uh, but things that, uh, that could take away their capabilities and that could also assist the joint force with other uh, operations they have to do. Because we, we, we may already be in a region you know, as I as I said, we have 50, we have forces in more than fifteen countries in the Indo Pacific. We have forces in in over seventy countries across the globe, uh, and and I think that access and placement uh, to be able to provide options is really important for our government. I think it's a it's such a critical point. So, by the way, it's just a great description. War around the edges. Uh, I can see a new blog popping up very soon called War Around the Edges. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a critical point, which is one of the problems I think we face in terms of thinking about when we don't want conflict, of course, but potential conflict is that it would be a big, bad war, you know, obviously with China. Uh, and so you have to complicate their thinking. You have to complicate their plans. Uh, you have to raise different types of risks on them. And that's exactly where that would come in. It, it's, it's not, you know, this isn't the folder gap. This is a, a very different type of approach uh, that that could be very critical in in stirring up uncertainty and trouble. Uh, and and as you point out, soft would be uh, at the center of that. So uh, we're getting we're getting close to the end. You've been very generous with your time, and I don't want to uh, take up too much um, more. I, I just uh, uh, there is a question I think that um, a lot of people have, which is um, as as soft looks forward uh, into this 
uh, well, we've got Ukraine, so we can leave that on, on the side, but into this sort of nebulous period in which we are um, viewing China very differently than, than we did, you know, for, uh, for some decades. Um, and you're coming off of 20 years where, where our soft operators have been on a relentless tempo. I guess there's an interesting question of, do you think that um, is soft doing too much? Is, is there, should soft be narrowing down a focus? Uh, are you doing too much? Maybe that's not war related directly, um, but that maintains that tempo or should it be no, that, that this is the way the force needs to keep going because it, the strains of we know on the families and we know on the service members are extraordinary. Now, Misha, I, I've made it a point since I've been in command is that soft should only do what soft can do. And we're, we don't need to take on something that someone else could do equally or equally as well or 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 sufficiently well to accomplish uh, the job. And when we have to prioritize um, in, in every single thing that we do, to what's most important for our nation, and so a, a couple things to to that to that really good question. One, the the counterterrorism threat, you know, the the violent extremism, it's not gone. It is still there, and we still have to put attention on that. I would say we don't need as many people on that problem set as we did. Uh, even 10 years ago, uh, and we can do a lot of it without with allies and with partners. So I, I think that's a really important point. But to for, you know, for your for your viewers, don't ever forget that there's not someone who would love to come to the United States and uh, and harm our citizens and go back to another 9/11. Uh, yep. But we stay on the front line every day to do that. But as we look at malign behavior. Uh, and look at what soft can can do in gray zone campaigning uh, is, is really what we refer to it. Uh, we're we're suited for that, uh, and where we can undermine adversary confidence through our operations and activities. Uh, in various regions, it doesn't, you know, not just the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and I think I think we can make we are making that sustainable uh, for our force that we're not. I would say today uh, we're not overstretched and we're actually in in a pretty good uh, position uh, with the growth of our force and truthfully with is how we've rebalanced uh, some of our missions. In fact, I was. I sat down with a, a Green Beret uh, first sergeant yesterday, uh, and what we have done for our force is that we, we call it deployment to twelve. So I'm one deployment, and we get to make sure that if you're if you're gone for a month, you're home for two months. Uh, mm -hmm. Really, we call it the one to two uh, dwell ratio. Our, our and for the first time in in this year. Everybody in, in our formation is going to meet a one to two deployment to dwell ratio. The goal is to get to one to three and uh, for, for our force. As we were talking, he goes, that's almost too much time at home. 
so sometimes I don't necessarily want to be home. If I'm gone for six months, that means I'm home for 18 months right. uh, before I can deploy again because that's almost too much time. Uh, uh, but there was a time uh, four or five years ago where it, it was less than one to one. Right. Uh, we were we were finding each, we were catching each other coming and going and and uh, that's because we can't create soft overnight. Uh, it takes a while to get get to the force that we have today, uh, and that's why I think it's key uh, that that soft does what only soft can do. Uh, Thank you. And this is that we resign. So, general last question, and and we'll go back to something something personal now without getting into anything classified or anything of course is going to get you in trouble you've served all over the world uh you've been in the special operations community uh for decades um what was the most fun you had where where, what 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 were you doing and where were you and what was the most fun you had because it can't be putting together a budget i'm sure that's not i know that uh, putting together a budget would, would not fall into that uh, I, I I've been blessed with was some great jobs uh, in my career, uh, some tremendous bosses who developed me, and I wouldn't be here uh, today if I hadn't. You know, and some tremendous, some just incredible non-commissioned officers uh, that I've gotten uh, to work with. Uh, but I, if if there's one job that was the most fun. That was actually commanding First Ranger Battalion. You know, back you know, when I was a you know a lieutenant colonel. Uh, now, 16 years ago, because it, and I'll tell you, the reason was because that's the last level of leadership you know, where you really do have direct leadership every single day, and you can know and see everybody at once, uh, and at the same time, you know, you, you have organizational leadership uh, uh, of an organization, about 800 people, uh, that you can make a direct impact each and every day. And that, you know, influence uh, folks for for that the two years I was fortunate to command there. And it's a standalone battalion that sits in Savannah, Georgia. So you're off on your own. Uh, and Savannah is not a bad place to live either. It sounds great. Well, so we've come come to the end of the time. And, and again, you've been very generous. Um, I think for our listeners who have, you know, whether it's a Hollywood view or, or whatever type of view they have of soft, you've, you've really sort of peeled back the, um, you know, uh, drawn back the curtain to show us what it's like, uh, what it is and what it's like. And, and some very thoughtful ideas on, on the Indo-Pacific that I'm certainly going to be chewing over. So, um, general Richard Clark, commander of us. SOCOM, thank you so much for joining us on the Pacific century. This is Misha Oslin, and we will see you next time. Thanks Misha. It's a pleasure being with you. Uh, and thanks for what you do in bringing this out. Thank you. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.